Chapter twenty six of Susan B. Anthony by Alma Lutz. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter twenty six Susan B. Anthony of the World. Susan was on the ocean in May nineteen o four with her sister Mary and a group of good friends headed for a meeting of the International Council of Women in Berlin. What drew her to Berlin was the plan initiated by Carrie Chapman Catt to form an international woman suffrage alliance prior to the meetings of the International Council. This had been Susan's dream and Mrs. Stanton's in 1883 when they first conferred with women of other countries regarding an international woman suffrage organization and found only the women of england ready to unite on such a radical program now that women had worked together successfully in the international council for sixteen years on other less controversial matters relating to women she and mrs cat were confident that a few of them at least were willing to unite to demand the vote chosen as a matter of course to preside over this gathering of suffragists in berlin susan received an enthusiastic welcome for her it was a momentous occasion and eager to spread news of the meeting far and wide she could not understand the objections of many of the delegates to the presence of reporters who they feared might send out sensational copy my friends what are we here for she asked her more timid colleagues we have come from many countries travelled thousands of miles to form an organization for a great international work and do we want to keep it a secret from the public no welcome all reporters who want to come the more the better let all we say and do here be told far and wide let the people everywhere know that in berlin women from all parts of the world have banded themselves together to demand political freedom i rejoice in the presence of these reporters and instead of excluding them from our meetings let us help them to all the information we can and ask them to give it the widest publicity this won the battle for the reporters who gave her rousing applause and the news flashed over the wires was sympathetic dignified and abundant it told the world of the formation of the international woman suffrage alliance by women from the united states great britain germany the netherlands sweden australia norway and denmark to secure the enfranchisement of women of all nations it praised the honorary president susan b anthony and the american women who took over the leadership of this international venture carrie chapman catt the president and rachel foster avery corresponding secretary to celebrate the occasion german suffragists called a public mass meeting and susan eager to rejoice with them was surprised to find members of the international council disgruntled and accusing 
the International Women's Suffrage Alliance, of stealing their thunder and casting the dark shadow of women's suffrage over their conference. To placate them and restore harmony, she stayed away from this public meeting, but she could not control the demand for her presence. Where is Susan B. Anthony? were the first words spoken as the mass meeting opened. Then immediately the audience rose and burst into cheers, which continued without a break for ten minutes. Anna Howard Shaw, there on the platform, and deeply moved by this tribute to Aunt Susan, later described how she felt. Every second of that time I seemed to see Miss Anthony alone in her hotel room, longing with all her big heart to be with us, as we longed to have her. Afterwards, when we burst in upon her and told her of the great demonstration the mere mention of her name had caused, her lips quivered and her brave old eyes filled with tears. The next morning her girls— brought her the Berlin newspapers, translating for her the report of the meeting and these heartwarming lines. The Americans call her Aunt Susan. She is our Aunt Susan, too. This was but a foretaste of her reception throughout her stay in Berlin. To the International Council, she was Susan B. Anthony of the world, the woman of the hour, whom all wanted to meet. Every time she entered the conference hall, the audience rose and remained standing until she was seated. Every mention of her name brought forth cheers. The many young women, acting as ushers, were devoted to her and eager to serve her. They greeted her by kissing her hand. Embarrassed at first by such homage, she soon responded by kissing them on the cheek. The Empress Victoria Augusta, receiving the delegates in the royal palace, singled out Susan, and instead of following the custom of kissing the Empress's hand, Susan bowed, as she would to any distinguished American, explaining that she was a Quaker and did not understand the etiquette of the court. The Empress praised Susan's great work and unwilling to let such an opportunity slip by, Susan offered the suggestion that Emperor William, who had done so much to build up his country, might now wish to raise the status of German women. To this the Empress replied with a smile, The gentlemen are very slow to comprehend this great movement. When the talented Negro, Mary Church Terrell, addressing the International Council in both German and French, received an ovation, Susan's cup of joy was filled to the brim, for she glimpsed the bright promise of a world without barriers of sex or race. The newspapers welcomed her home, and in her own comfortable sitting-room she read Rochester's greeting in the Democrat and Chronicle. There are women suffragists and anti-suffragists, but all Rochester people, irrespective of opinion, are Anthony men and women. We admire and esteem one so single-minded, earnest, and unselfish, who with eighty-four years to her credit 
is still too busy and useful to think of growing old. Her happiness over this welcome was clouded, however, by the serious illness of her brother Daniel, and she and Mary hurried to Kansas to see him. Two months later, he passed away. Now, only she and Mary were left of the large Anthony family. Without Daniel, the world seemed empty. His strength of character, independence, and sympathy with her work had comforted and encouraged her all through her life. A fearless editor, a successful businessman, a politician with principles, he had played an important role in Kansas and proud of him she cherished the many tributes published throughout the country courageously she now picked up the threads of her life her precious national american woman suffrage association was out of her hands but she still had the history of women's suffrage to distribute and it gave her a great sense of accomplishment to hand on to future generations this record of women's struggle for freedom missing the stimulus of work with her girls she took more and more pleasure in the company of william and mary gannett of the first unitarian church whose liberal views appealed to her strongly she liked to have young people about her and followed the lives of all her nieces and nephews with the greatest interest spurring on their ambitions and helping finance their education the frequent visits of niece lucy were a great joy during these years as was the nearness of niece anna o who married and settled in rochester the young canadian girl anna dan had become almost indispensable to her and to mary as companion secretary and nurse and her marriage left a void in the household anna dan was married at seventeen madison street by anna howard shaw with susan beaming upon her like a proud grandmother longing to see one more state one for suffrage susan carefully followed the news from the field looking hopefully to california and urging her girls to keep hammering away there in spite of defeats her eyes were also on the territory of oklahoma where a constitution was being drafted preparatory to statehood the present bill for the new state she wrote anna howard shaw in december nineteen o four is an insult to women of oklahoma such as has never been perpetrated before we have always known that women were in reality ranked with idiots and criminals but it has never been said in words that the state should restrict or abridge the suffrage on account of illiteracy minority sex conviction of felony mental condition etc we must fight this bill to the utmost the brightest spot in the west was oregon where suffrage had been defeated in nineteen hundred by only two thousand votes in june nineteen o five when the national american association held its first far western convention in portland during the lewis and clark exposition susan could not keep away although she had never expected to go over the mountains again as she traveled to portland with mary and a hundred or more delegates in special cars, 
she recalled her many long tiring trips through the west to carry the message of women's suffrage to the frontier in comparison this was a triumphal journey showing her as nothing else could what her work had accomplished greeted at railroad stations along the way by enthusiastic crowds showered with flowers and gifts she stood on the back platform of the train with her girls shaking hands waving her handkerchief and making an occasional speech presiding over the opening session of the portland convention standing in a veritable garden of flowers which had been presented to her she remarked with a droll smile this is rather different from the receptions i used to get fifty years ago i am thankful for this change of spirit which has come over the american people on women's day she was chosen to speak at the unveiling of the statue of sacagawea the indian woman who had led lewis and clark through the dangerous mountain passages to the pacific winning their gratitude and their praise in the story of sacagawea who had been overlooked by the government when every man in the lewis and clark expedition had been rewarded with a large tract of land susan saw the perfect example of man's thoughtless oversight of the valuable services of women looking up at the bronze statue of the indian woman her papoose on her back and her arm outstretched to the pacific susan said simply this is the first statue erected to a woman because of deeds of daring this recognition of the assistance rendered by a woman in the discovery of this great section of the country is but the beginning of what is due then with the sunlight playing on her hair and lighting up her face she appealed to the men of oregon for the vote next year she reminded them the men of this proud state made possible by a woman will decide whether women shall at last have the rights in it which have been denied them so many years let men remember the part women have played in its settlement and progress and vote to give them these rights which belong to every citizen reporters were at susan's door when she returned to rochester for comments on the ex-president cleveland's tirade against club women and women's suffrage in the popular ladies home journal pure folderol she told them adding testily i would think that grover cleveland was about the last person to talk about the sanctity of the home and woman's sphere this was good copy for republican newspapers and they made the most of it as women throughout the country added their protest to susan's a popular jingle of the day ran susan b anthony she took quite a fall out of grover c susan however had something far more important on her mind than fencing with grover cleveland an interview with president theodore roosevelt here was a man eager to right wrongs to break monopolies to see justice done to the negro a man who talked of a square deal for all and yet woman's suffrage aroused no response in him in november nineteen o five 
she undertook a trip to Washington for the express purpose of talking with him. The year before, at a White House reception, he had singled her out to stand at his side in the receiving line. She looked for the same friendliness now. Memorandum in hand, she plied him with questions which he carefully evaded, but she would not give up. Mr. Roosevelt, she earnestly pleaded, this is my principal request. It is almost the last request I shall ever make of anybody. Before you leave the presidential chair, recommend to Congress to submit to the legislatures a constitutional amendment which will enfranchise women and thus take your place in history with Lincoln, the great emancipator. I beg of you not to close your term of office without doing this. To this he made no response, and trying once more to wring from him some slight indication of sympathy for her cause, she added, Mr. President, your influence is so great that just one word from you in favor of women's suffrage would give our cause a tremendous impetus. The public knows my attitude, he tersely replied. I recommended it when governor of New York. True, she acknowledged, but that was a long time ago. Our enemies say that this was the opinion of your younger years, and that since you have been president, you have never uttered one word that could be construed as an endorsement. They have no cause to think I have changed my mind, he suavely replied as he bade her goodbye. In the months that followed, he gave her no sign that her interview had made the slightest impression. One of the most satisfying honors bestowed on Susan during these last years was the invitation to be present at Bryn Mawr College in 1902 for the unveiling of a bronze portrait medallion of herself. Bryn Mawr, under its brilliant young president, M. Carey Thomas, herself a pioneer and establishing the highest standards for women's education, showed no such timidity as Vassar, where neither Susan nor Elizabeth Cady Stanton had been welcome as speakers. At Bryn Mawr, Susan talked freely and frankly with the students, and best of all, became better acquainted with M. Carey Thomas and her enterprising friend, Mary Garrett of Baltimore who was using her great wealth for the advancement of women. She longed to channel their abilities to women's suffrage, and a few years later arranged for a national convention in their home city, Baltimore, appealing to them to make it an outstanding success. Arriving in Baltimore in January 1906 for this convention, Susan was the honored guest in Mary Garrett's luxurious home frail and ill she was unable to attend all the sessions as in the past but she was present at the highlight of this very successful convention the college evening arranged by m carey thomas with women's colleges still resisting the discussion of women's suffrage and the association of collegiate alumni refusing to support it the college evening marked the first public endorsement of this controversial subject 
by college women. Up to this time, the only encouraging sign had been the formation in 1900 of the College Equal Suffrage League by two young Radcliffe alumni, Maud Wood Park and Inez Haynes Irwin. Now here, in conservative Baltimore, college presidents and college faculty gave women's suffrage their blessing and Susan listened happily as distinguished women, one after another, allied themselves to the cause. Dr. Mary E. Woolley, who was president of Mount Holyoke, was developing Mary Lyons Pioneer Seminary into a high-ranking college. Lucy Salmon, Mary A. Jordan, and Mary W. Calkins of the faculties of Vassar, Smith, and Wellesley. Eva Perry Moore, a trustee of Vassar and president of the Association of Collegiate Alumni, with whom she dared differ on this subject. Maud Wood Park, representing the younger generation in the College Equal Suffrage League, and last of all, the president of Bryn Mawr, M. Carey Thomas. After expressing her gratitude to the pioneers of this great movement, miss thomas turned to susan and said to you miss anthony belongs by right as to no other woman in the world's history the love and gratitude of all women in every country of the civilized globe we your daughters in spirit rise up to-day and call you blessed of such as you were the lines of the poet yeats written they shall be remembered forever. They shall be alive forever. They shall be speaking forever. The people shall hear them forever. During the thunderous applause, Susan came forward to respond, her face alight, and the audience rose. If any proof were needed of the progress of the cause for which I have worked, it is here tonight she said simply, the presence on the stage of these college women and in the audience of all those college girls who will some day be the nation's greatest strength tell their story to the world. They give the highest joy and encouragement to me. During her visit at the home of Mary Garrett, Susan spoke freely with her and with M. Carey Thomas of the needs of the National American Association, particularly of the standing fund of $100,000 of which she had dreamed and which she had started to raise. Now, like an answer to prayer, Mary Garrett and President Thomas, fresh from their successful money-raising campaigns for Johns Hopkins and Bryn Mawr, offered to undertake a similar project for women's suffrage, proposing to raise $60,000, $12,000 a year for the next five years. As we sat at her feet, day after day, between sessions of the convention, listening to what she wanted us to do to help women and asking her questions, recalled M. Carey Thomas in her later years, I realized that she was the greatest person I had ever met. She seemed to me everything that a human being could be, a leader to die for or to live for and follow wherever she led. 
Immediately after the convention, Susan went to Washington with the women who were scheduled to speak at the congressional hearing on women's suffrage. In her room at the Shoreham Hotel, a room with a view of the Washington Monument, which the manager always saved for her, she stood at the window looking out over the city as if saying farewell. Then, turning to Anna Shaw, she said with emotion, I think it is the most beautiful monument in the whole world. That evening she sat quietly through the many tributes offered to her on her 86th birthday, longing to tell all her friends the gratitude and hope that welled up in her heart. Finally she rose, and standing by Anna Howard Shaw, who was presiding, she impulsively put her hand on her shoulder and praised her for her loyal support. Then turning to the other officers, she thanked them for all they had done. There are others also, she added, just as true and devoted to the cause. I wish I could name everyone, but with such women consecrating their lives. She hesitated a moment, and then in her clear, rich voice, added with emphasis, Failure is impossible. In Rochester, in the home she so dearly loved, she spent her last weeks thinking of the cause and the women who would carry it on. Longing to talk with Anna Shaw, she sent for her, but Anna, feeling she was needed, came even before a letter could reach her. With Anna at her bedside, Susan was content. I want you to give me a promise, she pleaded, reaching for Anna's hand. Promise me you will keep the presidency of the association as long as you are well enough to do the work. Deeply moved, Anna replied, but how can I promise that? I can keep it only as long as others wish me to keep it. Promise to make them wish you to keep it, Susan urged, just as I wish you to keep it. After a moment, she continued, I do not know anything about what comes to us after this life ends, but if I have any conscious knowledge of this world and of what you are doing, I shall not be far away from you, and in times of need, I will help you all I can. Who knows? Perhaps I may be able to do more for the cause after I am gone than while I'm here. A few days later, on March 13th, 1906, she passed away, her hand in Anna's. Asked a few years before if she believed that all women in the United States would ever be given the vote, she had replied with assurance, It will come but I shall not see it. It is inevitable. We can no more deny forever the right of self-government to one-half our people than we could keep the Negro forever in bondage. It will not be wrought by the same disrupting forces that freed the slave, but come it will, and I believe within a generation. She had so long to see women voting throughout the United States to see them elected to legislatures in Congress. But for her, there had only been the promise of fulfillment in Wyoming, Utah, 
Colorado, and Idaho, and far away in New Zealand and Australia. Failure is impossible was the rallying cry she left with her girls to spur them on in the long discouraging struggle ahead, fourteen more years of campaigning until on August 26, 1920, women were enfranchised throughout the United States by the 19th Amendment. Even then their work was not finished, for she had looked farther ahead to the time when men and women everywhere, regardless of race, religion, or sex, would enjoy equal rights. Her challenging words, failure is impossible, still echo and re-echo through the years, as the crusade for human rights goes forward and men and women together strive to build and preserve a free world. End of chapter 26 Recording by Phyllis Vincelli End of Susan B. Anthony, Rebel, Crusader, Humanitarian, by Alma Lutz.